All right, once again, I want to invite you, brothers and sisters, to turn in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, as we consider the state of the first couple, (laughs) as we consider God's creation and all that he made when he made it. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, we read the following. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this day, this opportunity that we have to consider these words. We thank you for the intentionality with which you made all things, and we marvel at the creation of your image when you created man, male, and female, but Lord, we come confessing that it's hard for us to conceive of our masculinity and our femininity and indeed even the institution of marriage apart from the grid given to us by our sinful nature. Grant that we would turn to you and cling to your every word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week I pointed out that this is not a series on masculinity or femininity. Uh, This isn't even a marriage series per se. Rather, we're, we're making our way through this book and in this creation narrative in chapter 2, in in these verses, we are getting a zoomed-in, up-close look at the span between Genesis 1.27 and 30, where the Lord created male and female, his image, uh, and then he pronounces it very good. In this zoomed-in version, we are introduced to the idea in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, that in spite of the absence of sin, there is something not good in the garden. And that not goodness 
is man's aloneness. It is not good that the first man is alone. Last week, we stressed that when we talk about concepts such as masculinity and femininity, we have to bear in mind that it's one of the basic things that make up our experience, that the two-genderedness nature of life is such that it's inescapable. Indeed, when we encounter somebody, it's, it's one of the first things we notice. It happens so fast, we, we usually aren't even cognizant of it. In fact, it's so, so quick and so seamless in our mind that it catches us, and we're always cognizant when we encounter some person who we can't tell if it's male or female. And that catches us, and we, and we spend a moment trying to figure out what it is, trying to figure it out, because we understand male and female, it's natural, it's basic, and it shapes our every experience, for better or for worse. Because we said the other thing that is basic to our nature now and to our experience is sin. We have none of us never known a moment in which we aren't being perceived or aren't perceiving through the lens of a fallen self. And that fallenness affects human relations. It affects relations not only in between male and female, but between civilizations, between, between everything. Especially and chiefly, perhaps, our fallenness affects our relationship with God. And so, I was one time at a, at a preaching conference led by Steve Lawson, who's one of the Ligonier Teaching Fellows, and we were looking at Psalms 1 and 2, and he, and he pointed out that Psalm 2 really just builds on and explains Psalm 1, uh, and he called Psalm 2 um, high-octane evangelism. And, and it really is when you break it down. But what I want to point out is this. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who doesn't stand in the way of sinners, Oh, sorry, walk in the way of sinners, stand in this place of scoffers, or sit in the seat of mockers. But on, his, on God's word, he meditates day and night. Meditate. All right, hold on to that word. Meditate. The man of God, the person of God, meditates on God's word, just trying to seek out how to live in accordance with God's word. Okay, go over to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Plot, plot, it's the same word that's used in 1-3. So the righteous meditate on how it is that they can learn and obey and walk in accordance with God's word. The wicked spend the same amount of energy except it's in the negative, they're plotting. Why? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst apart their bonds and cast away their cords from us. Okay, this is describing the state of natural man in rebellion, the wicked, the nations, the peoples, the kings, the rulers. 
The natural man exists in enmity with God and they plot to free themselves from what they perceive to be the bonds and the cords of God. What bonds are they talking about? Have you ever wondered that? I'm sure you've read Psalm 2 before. What do they mean? What are they talking about when they're wanting to burst these bonds apart or cast away their cords? They're using the language of enslavement or imprisonment. They are being, they are being restrained. That's what a bond and that's what a cord does. But, but, but what is restraining or what is, what is limiting, inhibiting their actions? Have you ever wondered about that? Well, chiefly, it is God's right to rule, God's right to organize, God's right to declare. And so any principle, precept, or rule that is from on high, either revealed in special revelation, his word, or that comes to us via general revelation, that is to say even creation ordinances that find in themselves a pointer to the fact that this universe exists under the rule of him, that's oppressive. Because what was the enticement of Satan? You shall be like God. The natural man wants to supplant God's authority with their own. And so there exists in every man, woman, child, people group, civil group, an impulse towards autonomy from the Lord which results in their desire to break whatever inhibitor it is that they perceive that God has set in place that prevents their self-actualization. Why did I say that? Because when it comes to recognizing the good that is the maleness and femaleness of the image of God, when it comes to recognizing the good that is the differentiated complementarity of the human race, when it comes to recognizing the good that is the institution of marriage, in every respect, fallen, rebellious people seek to tear it apart. And throughout history, we've especially focused on the differentiation part of our createdness. So some societies, some people, some places have focused on the differences in such a way that we've set up great barriers. Women must do this. Women must not do that. Men must do this. Men must not 
do that. So that these rigid, differentiated distances create resentment and become means of oppression. I remember Kay and I visited a, a plantation in the Old South. And we go in and it's, you know, it's like, wow, this looks like a house we might live in. But I guess back then you had to be rich to have, you know, two bedrooms. But they, they had a parlor, I don't know, a glorified man cave, whatever, where the, where the gentlemen would go and drink their bourbon and smoke or whatever. But it was off limits to women. And you know what they did to make sure that it was off limits to women? They made the door narrow so that a woman in her hooped dress literally would not fit through the door. Wow. Okay, so these rules have created resentment. But then we've also done the opposite, haven't we, where we've gone to the other and tried to say, oh, there's no difference at all. Anatomically, maybe, but everything is capable of being done by anybody. And so there's no distinction. It's just people are just widgets, plug and play. That is the ethos that's driving our modern culture where two dads is the same as two moms, is the same as a man and a woman. It doesn't matter. Have whatever kind of, whatever. And this imagined world that denies biology, I fear is going to set us up for, for catastrophe when, let's, let's start at something basic, there are differences, and one of them, it's this hormone called testosterone that guys have a whole lot more of than women, and so it results in bigger, stronger, more resilient muscles. And so that plays out in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Lord forbid that we should ever have another war in which we're involved in trench fighting or, or, or some sort of hand-to-hand -hand combat. Because the introduction of women to that environment will be catastrophic. There are differences. But we've in our culture, torn apart or trying to tear apart the distinctiveness. But we focus so much on the differentiatedness that we're either different or we're not. That's been the focus that we have really ignored that we're complementary. In fact, I wish that instead of saying the opposite gender, that we could just purge that because just saying the opposite does not convey that when God made woman, he was making something that was complementary, that, that was fitted for him. So saying the opposite gender, I mean, at one level, okay, fine. But, but really, it's not driving at what Genesis is driving at, that male and female are fitted for each other. They are complementary to each other. In our passage, we're introduced to a concept, to a basic fact of the universe that the Bible in multiple places speaks to. And that is, Adam was made first. And that has implications. But it was not good that he was alone. 
This is the Lord's verdict, not his. In fact, we get the idea that the Lord says it's not good, and then he sets up the case study to show Adam, see, it's not good that you're alone. And we get the idea that Adam understands this because when he's presented with the woman, we are introduced to the first poem in the Hebrew language, the first classical Hebrew coupling of poetry in verse 23. The Lord creates the woman, and simultaneously just about, he institutes the covenant of marriage. And this is so, so basic, but yet in our age, so, so countercultural. So I want to have three basic points, okay? First, the Lord makes a helper fit for the man. This is so important to understand because in verse 18, he says, I will make a helper fit for him. So those two words, the word helper, the Hebrew word is ezer. That may sound a little familiar. We sing in the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I've come. And the word Ebenezer literally means stone of help. But it's a monument that's erected to commemorate, to celebrate, to bring to mind the fact that the Lord aided us. The Lord helped us. And so this word Ezer refers to someone or something coming alongside to supply what is lacking or deficient in the one being helped to accomplish a task. It is not the word that you would use when your little toddler wants to come and help you make supper. That's important because sin has twisted how we understand things. It has twisted how men view their wives and what women think that the Bible thinks is their role. You weren't created because Adam needed a little, a little helper to, you know, entertain him or something. Oh, isn't that cute? Look, at she's trying. Oh, no, Adam was deficient. Adam had a lack, and by himself, it would have been, as we say, mission failure. He needed real help, and the help he needed was horizontal in nature. Remember, unfettered, uninterrupted access to God. His was not a spiritual problem. In this real world, he needed help to fulfill the purpose for which God made him. So the Lord created an easer, a helper, someone to step in and fill a role that ultimately God himself fills in the lives of his people. So it does not mean servant. It does not mean, uh, you know, of course, little, little mommy's helper in the kitchen. It means, it refers to a vital 
vital partner. But nonetheless, it does refer to the fact that the one being help has a mission or a goal or a task at hand. And the help is coming alongside for a purpose. There's a purpose at view here. And that purpose in view is, of course, the commission and command of God. But not only does the Lord make a helper, because again, if his principal problem was he needed to plow a field, that easer could have been a team of oxen. That's a lot of strength that he lacked, right? But no, he, he needed a helper that was fit for him. Fittedness, opposite and corresponding to, which is where we get the word complementary because it's an easier way of saying opposite and corresponding. You count the syllables there. If you want to say opposite and corresponding instead of complementary, okay, I'll just say complementary. But opposite and corresponding, there's a, there's a foreness to maleness and femaleness. And then, having created someone of the same substance, the same stuff, that is opposite yet corresponding, as a helper, as an easer to ensure mission accomplishment, the Lord presents and officiates the first marriage ceremony in verse 21. Or verse 22. And marriage is given to us as a picture. You have to understand that marriage is a picture. It's given to the human race at a very high level. Marriage is a picture of God's relationship with his people. Throughout the Old Testament, that same analogy, that same picture keeps being referred back to, and it reaches its most clearness, it's in uh, Ephesians 5.32. When this is really important to understand, when Paul says that the mystery, and mystery in Paul never means just something, something that we can't figure out, some, some wonder that we can't understand. No, mystery always refers to something that was intended but yet kept sort of semi-hidden. And then later revealed, so the mystery, the thing that was there but sort of hidden but now revealed, is that marriage is the picture of Christ and his church. It's important that you understand that, that marriage is not the thing that Paul was going, man, I need, I need a picture that I can, I need to sort of describe how it is that that Jesus relates to his church, is there something in the created order that I could use to, to sort of depict that? Oh, I got it, marriage. That is not how it went down. Marriage was created by God in day six as a picture of the forthcoming union of Christ with his people so that embedded in our very humanness is a picture of right, relationship to himself. And this is true, regardless of whether the marriage is between two heathens, two atheists, two devil worshipers. Marriage itself 
is a picture. Attesting to, pointing to, right relationship with God, relating specifically Christ to his church. Now, this is why when you understand that that is what marriage is, and oftentimes marriage and sex is so closely linked in the Bible, that in Romans 1, you have to see that when Paul talks about homosexuality, that the reason why it is the perfect example of wrong relationship with God is precisely because of what marriage itself represents, which is a picture of living in right, ordered relationship with God by means of the created order so that when someone takes upon themselves the prerogative it's referred to in Romans 1 and all throughout the Bible as rebellion because it's precisely a person seeking to create their own ordered universe where they decide what is fittedness as opposed to God's prerogative to do so. So marriage is a picture which also helps explain that when God created male as masculine and female as feminine and ascribes roles and duties to each, it's not entirely arbitrary. Just as the relationship between Christ and his church is not arbitrary. Second, marriage is between one male and one female. What is marriage? Well, we use the term to talk about the human relationship, but at a lexical level, the word marriage simply refers to the bringing together of disalike but complementary things. A match made in heaven is peanut butter and jelly. Cookies and milk. Beer and brats. Eggs and spam. Right? <laughs> okay, okay, bacon, I get it. But you understand, we all understand. But yet, when it comes to applying the word as God created the institution, we rebel in our modern day. Jesus affirms in both Matthew and Mark that the original pattern, the original principle is one man and one woman. It's precisely because of the fittedness that goes together. In all creation, there was nothing else fitted for the man. This, this being, not just anatomically, but relationally, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, 
physically, they're complementary. Anything else is a corruption of that. It's important that we differentiate. In, in, in our culture, what has driven a lot of this is, is marriage in, in the West has been understood primarily, sometimes exclusively, in terms of an expression of love, which is why this world has no problem. If the love runs out, then the marriage is gone, and it's no harm, no foul. Who cares? It was just an expression of love. And so if I'm in love with another dude, it's an expression of love. And already we've seen the polyamorous thing going on. If we're in love, let us express it. Mark my words, we're going to see incest soon. Because if I'm in love, it's an expression of it. And don't get me wrong, we are commanded to love our spouse. And we ought to find joy and delight in our spouse. But, but remember, as a, as a human institution, creation ordinance, there's, there's more at play here than your expression of love. There's, there's lots of relationships that involve love that are not marriage. I love my children. I love my parents. I love all y'all. But there's only one that meets God's sanction for a legitimate union that becomes one flesh, a man and a woman, because nothing else is fitted. Nothing else is meat. And finally, marriage is a creation ordinance. What that means is it is the duty of the civil magistrates in any place to regulate it, to make sure that, that, that brothers and sisters aren't getting married, that, that moms and sons or dads and daughters, or that that, that, that that kind of stuff doesn't happen, that we recognize who is married and who is not, because that also has implication for whose kids are whose. It is the duty of the civil magistrate in every location and in every time to honor it, to incentivize it rather than penalize it, to enact laws and policies that safeguard, protect, encourage it rather than the opposite. And it's our duty as Christians to call people, all people, to live out the implications of it. To point people to the thing of which it is a picture of right relationship with God. So even in the created order, there's a pathway to the gospel. We have multiple, don't we? General Revelation teaches us about the existence of power and and eternality and the utter incomprehensibility of God apart from him revealing. But then more close to home, we have picture of the gospel. 
And so we call people to be faithful, to repent of their sins and to turn to Christ, to honor God in their homes, to love, nurture, support each other, to live out creationally the way we were intended to. That's what we do here in the church as we exhort and encourage one another to live godly lives, not only as individuals, but as married people, as husband and wife. Marriage as an institution is glorious. And it's part of your fabric of your makeup because God instituted it. That's why people want their loves recognized publicly because there's the impulse there by God that try as they might, they can't squelch. And it's our job to honor it, to celebrate it, and to point people to it. Let the marriage bed be held in honor by all. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. So, brothers and sisters, the first marriage was between a perfect man and a perfect woman. But alas, it did not remain. Next week, we will consider what went wrong and why. Let's pray.